This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be sped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a little. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they are in debt to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been raised, I shall go on my way on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's ask God's illuminating strength. Let the strength of thine own spirit shine upon these words, Lord, and open them to our hearts that we may discern their meaning and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> the gold mine of the book of Romans changes its character as it unfolds before us. Earlier in the pages of Romans, there were great long veins of gold which we traced and mind, of course leaving much there untouched, but still we pursued these veins of truth and found in them the riches of the Word of God. But here toward the close of the book, the nature of the load changes. It's not deep, rich veins now to follow, but nuggets encased in the wall of the book, as it were or golden stars shining from the pages of the book of Romans. And here they are, these nuggets, waiting to be plucked and savored and treasured all our lives. Now we've come to this section 22 to 33, containing some rich nuggets for our treasury. You remember that last time we saw that Paul was saying that he had an ambition to preach the gospel where Christ had never been named. And it is that very ambition that has kept him from fulfilling his desire to go and be with the Christians at Rome, whom he had never met. Six years earlier, he had heard of them from Priscilla and Aquila, but he had never been in their company. But he had a great territory, some 1,400 miles wide and long, to cover, and only when the last great center of life had been touched with the gospel, only when foundations had been laid, 
where men had never before named Christ. Only then was the apostle free to visit the city of Rome where Christ's name was already loved by a few. But first, he has an errand to do, and a noble errand it is. He must take a love gift, which has been provided by the Gentile Christians at his instigation to the believers in Palestine who were Jewish in background and distribute it there in the name of Christ. Now it could easily have been entrusted to some other workers who would have delivered the gift safely. But the Apostle Paul wants to bring it himself in order to put down any sense of Jewish jealousy for his attention to the Gentile believers. And he thought that if he carried this gift himself, he could perhaps have it be a kind of a gesture of love and care and perhaps heal the rift that existed between the Gentile and the Jewish believers. And so he wanted to come. I think sometimes we forget how great in the estimation of Christ is the noble caring for the poor. We may entrust it to deacons and, and say, well, that's not spiritual work. Some of the rest of us will do this other work. And the Bible does call for a division of duty. But it never speaks of caring for the poor as any less spiritual than any other part of the ministry of the church. And when the apostles commanded Paul, they said to him that he must not forget the work among the poor. And he said, which very thing I was eager to do. And so here's a lesson exalting the ministry of the diaconate and at the same time reminding us of the godly responsibility to care for brothers and sisters in whatever need it may be. Before I can fulfill my desire, I must go and do this work. Then he said, I will come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Verse 29. Now imagine what Paul is saying. He knows that when he comes, Christ will bestow a blessing on him in their midst. What a confidence. Well, where does he get that confidence? Well, part of it comes from his own earnest desire. He knows that he will not fritter away the grace that has been given to him, but he will use it with all the enthusiasm he can among the Christians at Rome. And he says, I know that the blessing I, the gospel I preach will be filled with blessing for you. It's one thing to share the gospel with someone else barely and rotely and automatically. It's another thing to have the blessing of Christ upon your gospel. And so don't give a tract or a witness unless you also pray for and anoint that ministry with the expectation that Christ himself will make your witness a source of great blessing. I hope to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I am struck by such confidence. 
that the, that the Apostle Paul could know that when he went there, he would have it. And I believe that every Christian in this room can have a similar confidence about the things he or she undertakes in Christ's name. If we can discover the basis of Paul's confidence in the blessing of Christ and his gospel. I think as I read this section, and there's no other like it in all the New Testament, I think what I see is that Paul's confidence rested upon his earnest prayers and the prayers of the church for him in accordance with the will of God. The reason Paul could have confidence in approaching the Romans was the fact that he himself prayed and that the Roman and that these Roman Christians would be praying with him as well. Now let's look a little at that basis for confidence and see. It rests apparently on three, three legs in this passage and see if we can discern what these are. Well, I notice in verse 30 at the very beginning that Paul makes a strenuous appeal to them for prayer in his behalf. I appeal to you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now this word appeal is a military word. And Paul says, I summon you. Today we would say, I draft you. I command you. The way a military commander gives orders to his subordinates, Paul says to the Romans, this is how I'm speaking to you. Of course, he does it with courtesy and tact, but he's he is demanding from them with all the authority he has as an apostle that they would enter into deep and earnest praying on his behalf. And the reason he does this is that as a man of God, he knows that God usually bestows his blessings out of response to the prayers of his people, that God loves and requires us to repeatedly and earnestly pray in order for him to give the very blessings which he's already promised. Even though he's promised them, he requires us to ask again and again and with fervency if we are to receive the promises. We cannot sit back and simply say, well, God has promised. He's promised that he would sanctify me. He's promised he'd glorify me. Let him do it. No, I appeal to you. Now, he has two motives here to give them. The first is, he said, do it because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we have one common Savior. We are both at his throne of grace. We have one head, and we are knit together only by his blood. And therefore, I am not asking these prayers for my personal benefit. I'm not asking you to glorify me or make me a success. I ask you to pray for me for the sake of him. Pray for me by our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the motive of intercessory prayer, that Christ may be magnified. And the other motivation is by the love of the Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit, when he enters into person, 
unites their lives in a relationship of brotherly love. Men and women are normally hostile to each other. The natural man is snarling at his neighbors. But when Christ touches the human heart, he replaces with a spirit of love. And I ask you by the love that the Spirit gives that you would pray for me. Friends, the greatest sign of Christian love is intercessory prayer on another's behalf. The interchanging of prayers is the proof of the interchanging of love. No greater proof exists of love than you would pray one for another. Now the Apostle Paul is not only here doing this, requesting, but throughout his letters. Look, for example, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and look at that passage and see what he says in verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed on and triumph as it did among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Or look over at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. And also for me, meaning pray, because he said that in 18, pray at all times, and also for me, that utterance may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Do you see how dependent this man was? How utterly reliant he was upon the prayers of others for the success of his ministry. And Philippians 1, verse 19, Yes, and I shall rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so that's the reason that he's commanding, drafting them, because he knows this is God's way, this is Christ's glory, this is the love of the Spirit, this is his great need. And might I just insert a sentence, a personal plea, that in these next days you would pray for me. I need so very much the confidence that Paul had that I could go in the fullness of the blessing of Christ and from the first day and the first message, see the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit at work. I need an entrance into the hearts of men and women immediately, that no time may be lost. I need to be granted favor in the eyes of a city and a state, that the message of Christ may have access to all sorts and conditions of people, and that can only come if you will stand with me in prayer that this may be so. And I thank you for that. Now take the second of the legs. If the first is Paul's great appeal for prayer, the drafting of prayer soldiers, the second is the agonizing of intercessory prayer. Do you see it there? I appeal to you by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together. Now, 
Listen closely to the Greek word. You, when you hear Greek, don't turn your mind off now because you will recognize this word. The word in Greek is sun agonizomai, agonizomai, to agonize. And the picture is of teammates who are joined together in a great intense effort to win the contest. And they are agonizing, straining together to make a victory. I'll not forget soon the day I saw a real tug of war. Have you ever seen one? Or we, I mean, a real man-sized one. The rope was stretched across the Black River, and the teams were on each side of the water. Each team had dug pits for all its men. The men were prone in the pits with their feet up against the front wall. The last man, the anchor man, had this huge hawser wrapped around his big waist. And when the signal came from a boat in the middle of the river, you should have seen the straining, the perspiration break out, the hands go white. There was a convulsive kind of energy as if everything was geared to pulling that rope. And when at last the effort was over, the hands of the men had to be pried off the rope. I never saw anything like it. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses to agonize earnestly together in this great effort, sun agonizomai. Now, the reason for the agony of intercessory prayer is that there are out there hostile, demonic, opposing spiritual forces which are doing the very contrary thing to what your prayer proposes. And to pray for another is to enter into a fervent, intense effort of the inner man to go against these demonic powers in their efforts to block the progress of the gospel. That's what we're called on. And when we watch the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the pull of which I spoke is child's play. He didn't just perspire. He bled. He bled through the poor so earnest was this intercessory prayer because all the forces of evil stood up against his mighty praying power as if to keep him from overcoming evil in his crucifixion. But he won. That's the kind of praying. Now you see, Paul isn't saying here, you pray for me and I'll go merrily on my way. He says, strive together with me, with me. And so Paul has committed himself to this kind of earnest, agonizing prayer. And the only way you can ever ask anyone to pray for you is if you will commit yourself first to the kind of fervency of which you expect others to share.
strive together with me in this task. Oh yes, tell others precisely how you can, they can pray for you as I tried to do to you tonight. Explain to them particularly, precisely what the needs are. But having done that, don't rest in their prayers. Set aside time each day in which you too will agonize. And the combination of your fervent prayer and their great loving prayer will mean the working of God on your behalf. Now think of the third leg of that stool. As it were, there is the appeal of prayer. I summon you. There's the agony of prayer. Strive together with me. And do you see the aims of those prayers? Prayer always has its objects. And we're given here the very objects for which Paul asked prayer. And they represent, in a way, a little sampling of the kinds of objects for which we pray. Look at them a moment. His first desire is, in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Now Paul had a prophecy, as you remember, that there were those laying in wait for him. They even wanted to kill him. And they wanted to destroy his work, his gospel work. And he said, pray for me that I may be delivered from these unbelievers. Now notice the courage of this man. He didn't shrink from that which he knew to be essential to gospel progress. He was willing to, to spend and to be killed if necessary in the course of the gospel. He didn't seek to be a hero but he said, pray for me that I may be delivered. Now this is one kind of prayer, a prayer that may not be answered in the way that we desire. There's many a missionary that prayed for deliverance and was not delivered. And Paul fell into the hands of the unbelievers and was imprisoned and shipwrecked and suffered many things for years as a result of the fact that he did in fact fall into their hands. Yet was God's prayer not answered? It was answered. His life was spared him in that context. And God used even his captivity for the glory and honor of Christ and the conversion of many souls. But we have to recognize that sometimes when we pray for safety or deliverance in the cause of the gospel that it may not be answered in just the way in which we want it. It doesn't mean we're not to pray. We are to pray. We are to leave it in the hands of God. The second petition that he asks is, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, he was bringing money, and I was greatly rebuked when I read this. We just finished a hunger offering for Ethiopia, and as far as I know, we never prayed that our offering may be acceptable. We might have thought, aren't they fortunate to get it. We prayed for God's blessing on it, and I'm not judging us, but we learned from this. He bathed his offering in prayer, that it might find entrance to their hearts, that it might be a bridge of love with the Jewish believers, and that they would not see it as a bribe for their love. Paul was the youngest of the apostles and did not have the full trust of the whole church 
And so every step he took was taken in a great spirit of dependence on prayer. Here's another lesson then in a kind of praying. Sometimes the praying of Christians seems to be thwarted by the pride of men. Not always. Sometimes we pray asking God to influence and change the human heart toward his direction. And we don't see it happen. We're not sure precisely of the outcome of this prayer. But we know that God's will is done. That our prayer is not wasted. And yet sometimes our praying, as earnest and important as it is, is not answered in precisely the way we want. But we do know this, that ultimately the Jewish and Gentile sections of the church remained one. There was no great division. And under God, it seems that this gift and this prayer of the apostle was the reason. Then the third request that he makes is, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Pray that I'll be able to come by God's will. That's a perplexing phrase there, and we need more light to fully understand what that is, but this is not God's preceptive will. God has a preceptive will, that is certain code for our behavior and conduct. You don't have to pray whether it's God's will for you to steal that pocketbook or not. You know by the preceptive will of God it is not his will for you to steal that pocketbook. No question about that. But there is also God's decretive will in which he decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Here's Paul wanting to go to Rome. And what he's saying is, oh God, I bow before your sovereign will. But I would ask that if it is in accord with your will and purpose for me, I may go and be refreshed in the company of these saints of God. Now, at some point in Paul's career, we have described in Acts chapter 19 and again in Acts chapter 23, that God came to Paul and told him he was going to Rome. And if that occurred before he wrote this, which is not clear, but I don't think so, then Paul could say, I know it to be God's will, for he's spoken it. But it seems rather that at this point in Paul's life, unless there's some revelation to him of which we do not know, it seems that he's saying, God, this is something I would very much want to do, but I lay it before you according to your will and your purpose. What a way to pray. And what a way to ask others to pray. Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. Fervent prayer, but always in accordance with the will of God. And Paul went. He went to Rome. Not the way he had expected. He went instead of coming in to find the repose of a quiet harbor and the refreshment of lovely Christian people to heal his bruised soul. He went as a prisoner in chains. And there he arrived, not as he had thought, but fake friends out of his visit to Rome. 
came the great stream of precious and mature Christian writing found in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Where would the church be without these epistles? And could we not say that it was due to the Roman Christians praying earnestly that their friend may arrive among them, that God answering their prayers nourished the church with these great fountains of living water. Well, I had a sense after I reread this passage in preparation for this message tonight that we have not yet entered into the depth of this kind of intercessory prayer. Ours might have been bless Paul, and that's that. That's not striving together earnestly with me. We haven't yet entered this level of praying for each other, but it's waiting for us, and the scriptures call us to it, and it is there. Tonight, will you ask one another and promise one another to pray in the struggles in the soul contests in which you are engaged. Don't try to go it alone and agonize together and we will see victories among ourselves in the struggle of the soul. God forbid that we should sin against one another in failing to pray for each other. Let us pray now. Father, we're remembering now the friends who have asked of us that we would remember them in prayer and how casually and easily we have taken it, how little we have agonized in the struggles of the souls of others. Forgive us. Now when the great soul Paul addresses us, we stand at attention and we say, yes, sir, we shall agonize together in prayer that the kingdom of Christ may overcome its enemies and that the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Give us grace for this, O Lord. In Jesus' name.